Welcome to Eyes for Ears, your ophthalmology OCAPS and Board of View podcast. I'm your host, Ben Young, and this week, Andrew couldn't be here, so we have subbing for him, Amanda Redfern. Welcome back, Amanda. Thanks for having me back, Ben. Remember, this podcast is for medical education only and not to diagnose that weird thing on your eye. We're ophthalmology residents who figure that reviewing for boards, OCAPs, or the clinic is better when you don't have to do it alone. Each week, we review a different high-yield topic and talk about the why and the how. Hey, before we begin this week's episode, one editor's note. If you like our podcast and want to help support us, then we'd really appreciate it if you had the time to help us with a four-minute survey designed to assess the educational impact of the podcast. If you do the survey, you can also enter to win a $100 Amazon gift card. If you have the time, you can follow the link in the description of this video. You can also find the link on our Twitter at Eyes4Ears. Okay, that's it. Back to the episode. Okay, so we're going to start this week's episode with a case. If you haven't looked at the title of the episode yet, don't look, don't look. Okay, Amanda, hit it. So a 24-year-old, otherwise healthy female presents to the emergency department with right eye blurry vision and pain for two days. The pain is particularly bad when she looks around. On exam, she's 2080 in the right eye, 2020 in the left eye, and there is an RAPD in the right eye. She also has 5 out of 9 color plates in the right eye, but was full in the left eye. Confrontational visual fields are full. Extraocular movements are full, but painful. Anterior segment and posterior segment are unremarkable. What are you most worried about, Ben? Yeah, so this is just dry eye. Thanks for listening to this episode of... Okay, fine, fine, fine. Wow, we really are in the beginning (laughs) of the year again, aren't we? Okay, 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 okay. That was was nice. Where's Andrew? So, I'm, I'm joking. So... This sounds like, okay, let's say it together, okay? One, two, three. Optic Optic neuritis. Why, (laughs) though? Why, Amanda? Well, let's start out with what is optic neuritis? So, as the itis tells you, it's inflammation of the optic nerve. And there are many things that can cause this. And we'll get into some of the other causes, but the main thing that you should be thinking about is? Multiple sclerosis. Optic neuritis typically presents in? Young women, typically. Although it can happen in men, but the majority is young women, with or without prior history of neurological symptoms or demyelinating lesions. And the course of the disease, usually they present with some subacute monocular vision loss, so they've had it going on for a couple days by the time they come to you. So... What's the complaint that they always seem to have? They typically will have pain, periorbital pain, especially with eye movement. According to this trial that we'll look at in a bit, 92% of patients with optic neuritis will have some kind of pain with eye movement. Now, that's not that's not 100%, so still keep optic neuritis in your differential when you're seeing a patient without eye pain. But, you know, if they do have eye pain, then that should really clue you in on trying to rule out optic neuritis. So other potential complaints that they could have would be reduced colored vision, peripheral field deficits, decreased depth perception, phosphines or photopsias, and Uthoff's phenomenon. Ben, what's Uthoff's phenomenon? So back in the old days before they had MRIs, they didn't know how to diagnose. Well, it was difficult to diagnose MS because they didn't have, you know, the imaging. So what they'd do is they would take a patient and put them in a hot tub, and then they'd wait, 
if the patient was too weak to get out of the hot tub, then they had a diagnosis of multiple sclerosis. Now, that's not how we diagnose it today, but it shows you what the what Utah's phenomenon is, which is elevated body temperature, exacerbating a demyelinating lesion like in multiple sclerosis or an optic neuritis. So in this case, if a patient was elevating their body temperature, maybe they were going for like a run or heating their, their body up in some way, they were taking a, a long shower, and then they have associated vision loss with it, then you should really think about a demyelinating lesion as an Utah's phenomenon. Okay, so back to the present, now that we're done with the hot tub thing. Dr. Redfern, what do you look for on exam to help diagnose optic neuritis? So you're going to check for vision first because you're an eye doctor and that's what you do. A lot of these patients will have decreased vision. Occasionally, someone's optic neuritis might be pretty mild in that there's no significant or appreciable change in their smell and visual acuity, but that does not necessarily rule it out. The big thing that you need to look for, though, is an RAPD. If you didn't know, RAPD stands for Relative Afferent Pupillary Defect. You test that with a people exam. There should be an RAPD if there's a unilateral optic neuritis. It is, however, possible to not have an RAPD if there's a bilateral symmetric optic neuritis because you really have to have a difference in the way the uh, optic nerves are transmitting their visual information to the brain. What does the R stand for? Relative. Bingo. Right, and I just bring up what relative means because the relative afferent pupillary defect only tests for a difference between the afferent function of the two eyes. Both eyes could have an absolute afferent pupillary defect, and if it's symmetric, as Amanda pointed out, you wouldn't see anything on your RAPD exam. Uh, we'll go into more details about how to test for an RAPD, relative afferent pupillary defect, in a later episode. So be very conscious that People who still have 20-20 vision with optic neuritis, the RAPD can be very subtle. So look very carefully, especially if they have decent vision on Snell and visual acuity. Going back to the rest of the exam. So, Amanda, if, you know, if a patient has has pain with extra movements, we talked about that being a sign of optic neuritis. They can have, um, you know, limited extra movements as well, right? Like, you know, they just won't be able to look up because it's painful, right? Well, it's the nerve that's inflamed. It's not the muscles that are actually moving the eye. So they should actually be able to look all the way around. They might hurt doing so, like you said, but they should have full extraocular movement. If they don't have full EOMs, then you should be worried about other things such as orbital myositis or thyroid eye disease, which could cause some pain with eye movements and have restricted eye movements. Right. And optic neuropathy if it's bad enough. And, you know, that really hammers home that the cause of pain in optic neuritis is inflammation of the nerve. So when the nerve moves around because the eye moves around, you know, it's a cable in the back of the eye. So when the eye moves, the cable moves, and that's what causes pain. What are other ways to test the function of the optic nerve besides vision and afferent pupillary defects? Color plates. Color plates are a great way for detecting an optic neuropathy because color vision is one of the first things to be affected when the optic nerve is damaged. So whip out those Ishihara color plates, which for us is a book that's barely hanging on, but is apparently very expensive and hard to replace. Treat it. Treat it with respect. Treat it with your own child. So people with optic neuritis will generally have some dyschromatopsia, particularly red-green dyschromatopsia, and usually out of proportion to the vision loss. However, 
if their color plates are normal, then you should definitely check for red desaturation. Red desaturation is a more sensitive test for detecting subtle damage to the optic nerve leading to changes in visual perception. So if the color plates are abnormal, there's no reason to do a red desaturation test. You've already got your answer. But if the color plates are normal, whip out your atropine or tropicamide or phenylephrine and ask them if if it looks 100% red in their good eye, what percent red does it look in the eye that is affected? And just one other tip is, you know, we picked up optic neuritis in patients just because in one eye, they read the color plates much more slowly than in the other eye. So, you know, the color, the Ishar color plates, as we covered in our last episode about color vision, wasn't designed to test for optic neuropathies. It was just t- designed to test for, for congenital color blindness. It's still a useful test, but... Just keep that in mind that you, if you can even pick up like abnormalities like slower reading, that should elevate your suspicion for optic neuritis. There's another fun test that you can do anytime someone has an optic neuropathy. It's one of Ben's favorites. I, I, I do like it. It's cool. So Ben, what is Polfrick's phenomenon? Uh, so first I'll describe what it appears like to the patient. So what you do is you take a, like a pendulum of some kind. So, you know, the classic like watch that you can swing back and forth, or if you want, you can just take a pencil and swing it back and forth in a straight line in front of them. So I guess a line that is parallel to their glasses, if they wear glasses. So not like in and out of them, but you know, parallel to their face. Then as they wash the tip of that pen or that wash that you're swinging back and forth, if they have no problems, then it'll just look like it's moving in a straight line. But left if they, to right. Left, left to right. right. Yeah, exactly. Left, right, left, right. If they do have something causing decreased velocity of the signal going down the afferent pathway of their vision, i.e. optic neuritis, then instead of looking like it's going straight left and right, it'll look elliptical as if it's coming in and out of... Uh, against them as if it's kind of you know moving in an elliptical orbit in front of them this isn't this test isn't specific for optic neuritis actually even things like cataracts apparently can cause pulfrix phenomenon if it's very asymmetric the key is that there's a big asymmetry between the the signal received by each eye but it can be something that helps you if you know your apd exam is borderline or they have fixed you know people that are fixed for another reason that you can't test or um or their color plates were kind of borderline as well. Or if they were, for example, colorblind, which means you can't use the sharp color plates to really differentiate between two eyes. So that's just another tool in the toolbox that you can try out. Another tool is visual fields. So that's confrontational visual fields, usually when you're on call. And in that case, it's usually not sensitive enough to detect true visual field changes. And it's best to send any patient that you think might have optic neuritis to have some follow-up visual field testing that's done formally, like a Humphrey visual field. Although they can present with any type of visual field deficit, they most commonly show central depression or generalized reduction in sensitivity. And that's 48% of patients with optic neuritis will show that central depression or generalized depression. Right. You know, this is probably the better tool than Polfrix to differentiate someone who has like a what may be a subtle optic neuritis or one that doesn't obviously come out with your other testing or the other testing looks borderline. 
you know, it can help explain why some of the patients that you see will have 20-20 vision but still have optic neuritis because in the visual field, you'll see that there's a lot of patches like Amanda says or generalized reduction of the visual field, but the very center may still be intact and that's why they can still make out a 20-20 vision. So if you're ever in doubt, just get a visual field. That's like your number one go-to test. So, okay, so we've talked about uh, the functional exam for the patient. What about actually looking at the patient? You know, you you actually said something interesting about the case that you just presented, that their anterior and posterior exam were completely benign. But what about the optic nerve? We're talking about optic neuritis. Why doesn't it look weird? It depends where the inflammation's at. Where is that demyelinating? De- blah, blah, blah. Where is the... Yeah. I might just keep that in. <laughs> I live in an anemone. I live in an... I live in an anemone. Don't hurt yourself, kid. I live in an... So as it turns out, only a third of people with optic neuritis will have optic nerve head swelling. That's because a lot of the inflammation can be posterior in the optic nerve where you can't see it. Right. Remember that the optic nerve, the majority of it is posterior to the optic nerve head. So if you're going to, you know, just statistically, if you have inflammation in one part of the optic nerve, it won't be at the nerve head, which is why you won't see swelling. Would you see pallor? No, initially you won't see pallor. To review, pallor means atrophy of the optic nerve, but that atrophy won't happen acutely. That usually takes four to six weeks to set in. So you definitely won't see it initially, though later you should be able to see some pallor. Okay, so really all of this is to help you, you know, diagnose optic neuritis and it's partially to help you decide to get an MRI or not. Now, optic neuritis is a clinical diagnosis. You don't strictly need an MRI to diagnose it, but as we're talking about in a bit, it does help you to prognosticate and help treat associations with optic neuritis and you'd expect enhancement of the optic nerve. You're ordering an MRI brain in orbits with and without contrast. To clarify, that should be T1 post-contrast. So that's diagnosis of optic neuritis, but now what do you do? How, how, and how do we know what to do once we've diagnosed optic neuritis? Well, there's a big trial that you may have heard of. It's called the Optic Nerve Treatment Trial. And much of what we understand about the natural history of optic neuritis and how that relates to MS, as well as treatment and prognosis, come from the ONTT. So the purpose of the trial was to see whether um, corticosteroids helped or hurt in optic neuritis and what it did to determine the natural history of vision changes in patients with optic neuritis and then to identify the risk factors for developing MS, multiple sclerosis, after one's had an episode of optic neuritis. For methods, the enrollment took place between 1988 and 1991. 457 patients with first presentation of unilateral optic neuritis between the ages of 18 and 45 were enrolled. They were separated into three treatment groups. The first group received IV solumedrol, 250 milligrams every six hours for three days, followed by 11 days of prednisone, one mg per kg per day. The second group got only oral prednisone, one mg per kg per day for 14 days. And the third group just received placebo. So one of the major findings was that the vast majority of the patients recovered vision to 2040 or better, 92%. And then only 3% were left to 2200 vision or worse. Treatment with IV steroids did not change the final visual outcome, but did accelerate the recovery by one to two weeks. Visual recovery typically takes one to three months. 
right? So it doesn't knock off that much time off the total recovery time, but apparently it helps somewhat. Interestingly, and this is one of the key findings that helps guide a lot of our treatment, is that treatment with oral prednisone was associated with an increased rate of recurrence of optic neuritis. So if you only gave the oral, like in the second group Amanda just described, then they were more likely to get optic neuritis later. As for the question about MS, they looked at the development of MS after 15 years or the 15-year risk of developing it, and it broke down to 25, 50, 75. So that is, if you had an episode of optic neuritis, you had a 50% chance of developing MS within 15 years of the episode of optic neuritis. Now, that breaks down a little bit more if you get an MRI to help you prognosticate. With those people who did not have any lesions on their initial MRI, it decreased the risk of developing MS to 25% at 15 years, whereas those people who had a lesion on their initial MRI had an increased risk of 75% chance of developing MS within 15 years. And if someone, if you've heard the 20-40-60 rule, that's kind of the same breakdown, but that's related to the 10-year data. So you know, now that we have 15-year data, it's probably better clinically to remember the 25-50-75 rule. Slightly rounded. I think it's 72, but... It's slightly rounded. That's, <laughs> you know, what's 3% between friends? <laughs> You know, so that gives us, you know, our present guidelines for management of newly diagnosed optic neuritis. You get an MRI brain and orbits with and without contrast because it's not really for the optic neuritis because, again, you've diagnosed it clinically. It's for diagnosis of MS because that helps prognosticate and helps get them into the appropriate neurology clinic to manage their MS early on or to uh, help them monitor for it early on. Then you admit the patient for IV steroids. Again, it's a gram a day or 250 four times a day uh, for three days. And then you give them the oral prednisone for 11 days for a total of 14-day course. You don't give them just oral from the outset because this trial showed that it actually makes optic neuritis recur more often. In terms of prognosis, your baseline MRI, like we said, is going to really help prognosticate with regards to MS. Snellen visual acuity normally improves uh, significantly, if not back to baseline, then close to baseline in most people. However, 90% of patients with visual acuities of 2030 or better still have residual abnormalities that they may complain about to you, whether those abnormalities are in their visual field, color vision, contrast sensitivity, or motion detection. And an exam, they may still have an APD, or you know, they really should still have an APD. That's optic neuritis. I mean, that's that's it in a nutshell. You want to hear something cool that the optic neuritis treatment trial also found? What? So none of the following uh, types of patients developed MS. Patients with severe optic disc swelling, peripapillary hemorrhages, retinal macular exudates, or vision reduced all the way down to light perception. So you're telling me if they have if they have severe swelling of the disc, any swelling of the macula or hemorrhages around the disc or really bad vision to light perception, that that's not typical optic neuritis? It's actually very atypical, but if you want to learn a little bit more about that, you'll have to stay tuned in to next time. If you liked what you heard, you can follow us on Twitter at Eyes4Ears with the number four. It also helps if you rate and review us on iTunes or whatever platform you use to listen to your podcasts we also have the website that andrew 
to help support and run, which has the Anki flashcard deck so you can use to review the material that you heard about this episode instantly. Uh, Andrew also started an Instagram called eyes for ears that you can also follow with number four. And one more reminder, if you like this episode or you like our podcast and you want to help support us, it really helps us if you can answer that survey. Again, it should be in the description below or you can find it on our Twitter. And it's just a four minute survey. There's a hundred dollar Amazon gift card on the line if you answer the survey. And that's that's all we have for this week. We'll see you next week for Atypical Optic Neuritis. Can't wait. Bye. Bye.